they would say, no, it's not hypocrisy. We are just doing our best to explain how a government ought to govern in ways that are commensurate with what is revealed to us by God. So we don't limit worship, but we, because that's essential. And we do limit LGBTQ people because that's clearly sinful, right? So in their mind, there's no um, hypocrisy. There's no double standard. um, There's no disconnect here. It all makes sense to them because they think the governments ought to govern based on the morality that they believe is revealed in scripture. Welcome to another episode of All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. Uh, We're taking a break from our normal uh, mini-series investigating the historical origins of the Christian far right and uh, doing another installment of All the Rage at the moment. Uh, There's been enough going on in the news that we thought was worth addressing, specifically with regards to more of... Uh, Christian nationalism, which is interesting. You know, a couple of years ago, all of these people were saying, what, what even is Christian nationalism? That's not a thing. Don't need to be worried about that. And then uh, those same people now, a couple of years later are saying, yes, Christian nationalism, of course, you know, is just what Christians who live in a nation ought to be uh, because we're Christian and we live in a nation. But there have been uh, some, some significant developments from some notable people that we're going to talk about. But first, as our viewers and listeners who've been with us for a while know, uh, we keep an eye on the statements and the declarations that come out from the, the Christian far right. Lots of them we've looked at a couple years after, um, after they have influenced sort of policy. This one is a little bit uh, fresher off the press. So we're looking at the Frankfurt Declaration, um, which was published just a few weeks ago by the the usual suspects. We'll talk about some of the signatories here. But what what is the Frankfurt Declaration of Christian and Civil Liberties? Well, it's the usual suspects and a bunch of Frankfurters, apparently. <laughs> you know, I've reached we we've reached out to our, our German correspondents, and uh, still still not a lot of information forthcoming on uh, who the German nationals are who who signed the statement. But that's kind of the you know the unique brand element of this one is if you look at the initial signers and the notable signers, uh, you'll see a lot of names that do not ring a bell for the typical uh, U.S. evangelical culture war watcher. Most of them are just pastors of uh, local congregations. There were a few who are uh, founders of nonprofit organizations with extremely benign sounding names, like you translate it, and it's just the most generic sounding uh, organization, like organization for the uh, history of the Christian church or something like that. And, right. and they're about me pages. Once you, once you translate them, not a lot about them. So it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, origin for this, but it begins in the most dramatic way possible. So you know that it's very serious. <laughs> the, the, the first line of the, of the introduction in the course of human events, it sometimes becomes necessary for people of good faith to speak out against the abuse of power. So basically, they're, they're mad about COVID restrictions is what it is. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's the, 
background of the entire document is they're mad that churches were shut down, that people were required to wear masks and that there were vaccine mandates. And they wrote an entire uh, theological statement, basically whining about those things and couching their, their complaints in theological language. Right. And I suspect that the, some of the impetus to link this to the German church is linked to the uh, general appeal to uh, anti-Nazism and, you know, the, the vaccine as a new Holocaust and that kind of language. Some protesters in Germany would wear yellow star uh, badges or armbands to protest uh, vaccine passports and that kind of thing. So I suspect that it was a, a an attempt to lean into that message to kind of further legitimate the rationale of, of ultimately at the end of the day, just kind of saying, uh, I don't have to you don't have to keep records of vaccinations, do you? <laughs> <laughs> right. And then. Obviously, well, I can't say obviously, I haven't listened to any of their commentary on it, but it seems to be a riff on the original Frankfurt Declaration, uh, which, which came from the democratic socialists in uh, Frankfurt back in the 1950s, 1951, um, you know, which was similarly, uh, you know, it condemned capitalism. And so it, it's, it's almost like they're I don't know. Maybe that maybe they're not smart enough to make that <laughs> that connection, <laughs> uh, but it seems like they're trying to make their own Frankfurt Declaration about the the abuse of power. It, it reads like all of their other statements. You know, the first article is on God as the creator and sovereign lawgiver and judge, uh, which basically talks about how you know God is the one who gives morality, and then the crux of it comes in their denial at the at the end, which says we have good grounds to question the modern state's ethical pronouncements and moral vision since their secular humanism and relativistic ethics have no transcendent basis for human behavior or morality. <laughs> right. So basically yeah, which the government can't tell us what to do because they're all a bunch <laughs> of atheists. That's the bottom line dressed up in theological language. Right. It's, it's kind of convenient that this, this was published in the midst of us doing this historical uh, retrospective because the idea of secular humanism has been, you know, for 70 years has been the, the rallying cry of the Christian right. Right, right, exactly. Which, you know, is actually the wrong, right? Most of very, very little secular humanism uh, has that much power. It's, it's Daniel Williams talks about this a lot. It's actually always been a battle between more, um, progressive and, and modern Christians and fundamentalist Christians, but the fundamentalist Christians accuse the progressive Christians of, of giving over to secularism, secularism, right. And, and, um, giving over to atheism. But I've got to say in this, in the statement, the thing that shocked me the most was, uh, this particular sentence. Now I'm going to, I'm going to read it, um, verbatim. Um, and I think it'll probably shock our hearers to, to hear this about face from some of these notable conservatives, they said, quote, we also affirm that governments should recognize that each individual is responsible for their own bodily well-being and should protect the right to personal medical self-determination. All of a sudden, I guess these guys are pro-choice. 
Yeah, well, you know, it doesn't doesn't they don't mean it like that, right? <laughs> of course not. Not of like that. Not. <laughs> not like that. Uh, and then in the next paragraph, we therefore deny the dehumanizing actions of a governmental authority or any other institution to subject any person to psychological manipulation and intimidation. This includes fostering suspicion of others by portraying them as potential threats to the common and individual good. We likewise oppose the state's mandating of medical decisions for its citizens and the criminalizing enforced segregation, vocational disempowerment, and any other deprivation of rights of persons who choose not to comply with their government's medical policies. So all of a sudden, these, these people who are promoting government-enforced restrictions on gender identity and um, medical procedures are saying that the government should have no say and, and people who choose make certain medical choices shouldn't be discriminated against based on those choices. Very convenient and incredibly hypocritical. Yeah. And it, I mean, you can extend the idea that, uh, and here's the thing. If you've been paying attention to the anti-vax crowd or anti-mask crowd, uh, anti-lockdown, uh, all of this is just a line by line restating in kind of theological dress of the arguments that they've been making all along about even you you go back to the, you know, the early social distancing measures uh, early in 2020 and the need to designate some people as essential workers because uh, you know, some, some core uh, labor activity you can try to facilitate in a socially distanced way, but you can't do without it, right? You have to have ambulances. You have to have people working grocery stores. And so there were categories deemed essential worker. And the way that the what would become the anti-vax movement immediately latched onto that and said, I'm not unessential, right? Like unessential became this epithet. Like you're saying that some people matter more than others. And so some people are essential and some people are unessential. Like what's next? The death camps. Like that's literally where they took that. (laughs) Right. And they talk about that a little bit in Article 5, too, in the denial. They say, we therefore deny that any other authority has jurisdiction over the church to regulate any of its affairs in matters of faith and practice or to relegate its activities to a non-essential status. Mm. And the last line says, lastly, we resist the trend of digital platforms in Christian worship (laughs) and ministry to become substitutes for congregational and (laughs) in-person ministry, which are essential to our faith. Right. So really playing on that, that essential language and saying the government can't tell us, you know, when or where to worship because God says it's essential. So therefore, you know, God said it, that settles it. I believe it. Right. Right. But uh, just to, to make one more point about the idea that you know, some groups of people should not be regarded as inherently dangerous or uh, what is in defiance of the common good. Right. And then look at the way that they talk about all LGBT people as groomers, as dangers to our children. You shouldn't even uh, have job protection if you're, uh, if you're gay or lesbian, uh, let alone transgender, according to these same people. One of the constituencies who I think is conspicuously absent from the initial and notable signers are our friends, Michael O'Fallon and James Lindsay. Which is interesting because James Lindsay's all about the Frankfurt School, right? Uh, yeah, I wondered about that because I mean, so we've got Doug Wilson and James White and Josh Bice and Tom Buck, 
but I was surprised actually by some of the names that aren't on here. You don't see uh, Owen Strand. You don't see any of the, uh, you know, Southern Baptist seminary presidents or, but yeah, so you, you're right. There's some notable conspicuous absences. You just sort of wonder about why those people didn't sign. I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in those conversations. Say, many times, eh, I don't know. That's a, that's a little too far, even for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the case for some of these so much as why are we planting our flag for anti-COVID restrictions now? It just seems yeah. like, I think, I think that for someone, especially like a, a Michael O'Fallon or James Lindsay, who are really, really hard on the anti-Marxism at the moment, uh, I, I think they would just see it as an operational distraction of sorts. That makes sense. Yeah. But even some of the people, I'm thinking like Owen, Owen Strand, who uh, mm-hmm. was in the corner of, of these Canadian pastors who defied the, the Canadian orders, right? His name's not on here. Um, but I assume some of the Canadian pastors, I, I didn't look close enough to yeah. check up. James place. Coates. James Coates is the main. He yeah. was the first one. I think he's in Alberta, I think in Calgary. Um, but he was a TMS graduate, which is John MacArthur's unaccredited seminary and was the first of the, of the heroic, we're going to defy mandates and, and start meeting. Uh, even though they had quite reasonable accommodations, right? And that's been the thing that's been frustrating throughout all of this is uh, so many of the, you know, we're going to defy the local government or the federal government to continue to hold church uh, was was done in cases when you were still able to meet, even meet in person with specific accommodations like go to, you know, you could have up to so many people in the building based on the, the size of the building and the, and the space and the ventilation. So you could have multiple services or you could have an online element and an in-person element. You could go in uh, week by week shifts, which I know some churches did. Um, but of course, and they build this explicitly into the statement, their whole online church isn't church. Right. Right. Which very conveniently gives you not just a sort of preference-based rationale for being mad at the government's decisions, but it's a you know, violation of religion. And in the United States, the Christian right has been really effective at using freedom of religion legal argumentation to advance their causes. And in fact, in um, uh, it was a case from New York but went up to the Supreme Court, and it was in, I think, July – or August 2021, went up to the Supreme Court and it was held that, well, if hardware stores are open, then churches have to be open too, even though comparable things like, say, music theater, you know, comparable to what you do in a church, which is not roam singly or in pairs up and down aisles, but in fact, congregate together and sing into each other's faces. But somehow that's that's not the relevant comparison. They instead compare them to places that were open, like corner stores and groceries. And uh, the one that really incensed them was liquor stores, right? Liquor yeah, stores can right. be open, but churches can't. Right. <laughs> and so at least in the U.S., uh, this idea of couching it in freedom of religion language was very effective and got that all overturned. And in the case of John MacArthur's church, they – I don't know that it's accurate that they sued the city. I mean, it was a lawsuit. It was a legal challenge. Yeah, so hundreds of thousands of dollars 
paid to the church in settlement for legal fees. Now, I want to get your your opinion on this. Um, when I first tweeted about this, uh, our, our mutual friend, Bradley Mason, who's done a lot of work investigating this type of thing, he, he made the claim that this statement means that the signatures, quote, most definitely need to be on a DHS watch list. And I'm not joking. As completely silly as it is, it's very clearly from the opening sentence intended to justify future violence, end quote. And so he's obviously talking about that, you know, in the course of human events, it sometimes becomes necessary, which I don't believe is an accident. It's reminiscent of the opening line of the Declaration of Independence, right? Which did lead to, you know, violent uh, <laughs> uh, revolution. Do you think that that's in mind? Do you think it, it, there's any intention on the, on the part of the framers to justify that kind of thing? Should it happen again? Or are they just being, you know, melodramatic in the language that they use? Well, they're definitely being melodramatic. Um, here's the thing. Enough of the figures I am familiar with have used genuinely moral panic type language that leads up to the point of eventually the state will turn on us, will come for us, and uh, it, it'll be up to those who love their country to fight back, that kind of thing. But that I, my sense is that's not the primary tenor of the general posting or, or broadcasting or, or writing of the people here. But I think that this, this verges onto territory that's similar to what we'll be talking about um, a little bit later when we uh, give updates to our libs of TikTok discussion, because they engage in the same kind of thing, right? It's this right. language that with plausible deniability, you don't, like there's nothing actually to justify putting you on a watch list. You're just, you know, expressing your view. You're just expressing outrage, uh, but you're doing it in a way that I don't. The in the incentives are lined up such that if someone does or is inspired to violence on your behalf, it would be convenient, right? Right. Yeah. And so that yeah, there is something kind of uh, you know something akin to stochastic terrorism, um, but I also know yeah, they're also just a bunch of nerds who like to sound grandiose and I mean like the Declaration of Independence and want to consider their pronouncements to be kind of on the same scale. So I think that's probably the closest thing to their motivation, but. Again, it's the misalignment of incentives, right? Right. When when you right. write something and it would be to your benefit if someone does take it the worst way, then you don't have much of an incentive to be more responsible with your language. You have a more an incentive, in fact, to ratchet it up, which is what I think that is. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. And then if it comes that way, then you know you look back and we've always had that foundation, you know, sort of like a. <laughs> you know, post hoc justification, I guess. So that's not Christian nationalism per se, all, all of this, but it is, you know, these, these far right people questioning the role of, I guess the connection here is, you know, pushing for 
their particular vision of government control, government interventionism, what they think. And the relationship between the church and state. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very Um, much, I think it's very much in line with like reconstructionist thinking. Yes. Yes, certainly. Uh, And, you know, over and over again, they talk about how, you know, God is the ultimate lawgiver and that lawmakers and governments will ultimately give account to God for the way that they steward or don't steward the power that's given to them, you know, and, and pushing against atheistic or, or secular humanist government. So it, it all, it, it, it's all part and parcel, right? They would say, we're, we're, you and I see hypocrisy in this. They would say, no, it's not hypocrisy. We are just doing our best to explain how a government ought to govern in ways that are commensurate with what is revealed to us by God. So we don't limit worship, but we, because that's essential and we do limit LGBTQ people because that's clearly sinful, right? So in their mind, there's no um, hypocrisy. There's no double standard. um, There's no disconnect here. It all makes sense to them because they think the governments ought to govern based on uh, the morality that they believe is revealed in scripture. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, the really troubling thing about the, the fundamentalist impulse behind what they're doing is the, the linking of the proper ordering of society to, I mean, in this case, the, the, ma- the Christian magistrate or the magistrate who is the affairs of government or your, your leader are shaped by what God expects of them according right. to their political theology, right? Right. But they also – have zero humility in what? the relationship between them and their interpretation of the scripture. It's just straightforwardly what it means to them is uh, objective and clear. And anyone who disagrees is not just a Christian who is mistaken or a Christian who disagrees or is working from a different system. Right. It's a different religion. It's, you know, yes. Machen's Christianity and liberalism that right. the liberals uh, have have killed Christianity and wrapped themselves in its uh, remains like a skin suit. Right. <laughs> that's not Machen's terms, but that's the terms they consistently use today when they're uh, paraphrasing right. Machen. Right. And so, yeah. if that's if that's your standard, then the the breadth of what government must be obeyed is in it's essentially non-existent unless you have a christian theocracy right because anything that the leader's not doing that's out of line with your interpretation of scripture is therefore illegitimate and you can rebel against it right right, right. which is how we get to you know certain things it's romans 13 uh, right. You need to obey the government and other, th- other things. Uh, no, we have a duty to rebel and those things just happen to align very clearly <laughs> with our own political theology. Right. So with regard to immig- you know, immigration, we obey the magistrate with regard to COVID restrictions. It's time to rebel. Anything else on, on the Frankfurt statements or anything surrounding that? Not, not from me. Um, <laughs> okay. ex- except to point, point out again that, Man, that, that ship sailed so long ago. Right. The idea that you're still so bitter about the three months in 2020 when your church was required to go online. Right. Just. Now, do you, th- do you think that possibly the threat of monkeypox had anything to do with that? Because I know that, that James White and some of the others 
we're all we're preemptively tweeting and talking mm-hmm. about you know this is going to happen again so do, do you think that maybe the specter of monkeypox yeah. like drove this i i don't it, it's very possible especially because a lot of these figures have been making just the most outlandish conspiratorial uh, predictions about what the government will do and the lengths to which it'll go and you know the ends to which it will put all of these COVID restrictions because they'd make fun of you constantly for saying wearing a mask on a sub on the subway is actually just a net benefit like that is better than life was in 2018. Why like like people would say what's the big deal? It's a mask. I I literally forget I'm wearing it sometimes. Uh, and they would respond and say, oh, you think it's just a mask now, but the next thing is, and you know, uh, three steps down the line, and then they have the microchips in your hands. And, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating James right. White in particular, but, right. but many of these, many of these signers have been making all sorts of just outlandish predictions about how the government will never, you know, never take back x y or z policy and then you know two two months later the, the government quietly is like oh we've revised our mandate so that uh as long as you're not coughing too hard you can still go to work <laughs> and they just they have nothing to say about it because right. what they insisted would never happen the government once they get these protocols in place they will never relax them they'll just find excuses to continue you know doubling down on them and Nowhere in the world, not even Australia, which was their favorite, you know, uh, tyrannical state to point out. Like Australia set an end date. And when they got to that end date, they said, "Okay, if you're not vaccinated by now, tough luck. And that's it. So where are all of the places where, you know, once the government gets this in place, once they, you know, establish a policy, they'll never let it uh, never let it be stripped, taken away from them. And it just. Pretend it never happened. But so the predictions they've been making are so outlandish. And a lot of them were, and especially James White, were really concerned about um, monkeypox and that this was the next, you know, pandemic. <laughs> right. But just just the the fear mongering of it all. Right. All just based in in a rational fear and fear mongering, uh, which I think is an appropriate segue to the next thing that we're going to talk about, which is this clip from a recent Trump rally uh, in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, So I guess maybe the first thing we should do is just play this clip. So our viewers will see it and everyone else will uh, hear the audio from it and the the strains of the music, but we'll, we'll play that now. We are a nation that allowed Russia to devastate a country, Ukraine, killing hundreds of thousands of people. And it will only get worse. It would never have happened with me as your commander-in-chief. And for four long years, it didn't happen. And China, with Taiwan, is next. We are a nation that has weaponized its law enforcement against the opposing political party like never, ever before. We've got a federal bureau of investigation that won't allow bad election-changing facts to be presented to the public, where Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation when they knew it wasn't, and a Department of Justice that refuses to investigate egregious acts of voting irregularities and fraud. And we have a president who is cognitively impaired 
and in no condition to lead our country, which may end up in World War III. We are a nation so that no longer has... Describe for me what we just watched and what we just heard. It's, I mean... In some ways, it's it's really typical Trump rally stuff. And Trump has been doing these rallies for so many years now that they t- almost ne- just don't get attention. They're, they're just the most like they're just part of everyday American life. Right. And so, you know, his his language, his claims, uh, pretty typical. But over it is set this uh, emotional music. And you see the images of the people listening and they're. All, you know, mostly one arm raised. A few people have two arms raised, but mostly uh, holding up one finger pointing to the sky. Right. And so it has all the appearance of being, uh, you know, a Passion 2003 worship conference. Right. Right. It, right. it looks like people having a, a religious devotional experience. Right. So what's your first impression? Just of the of the the words and the visuals what you know what what jumps out at you so a couple of things right in terms of the words trump's words it's all it's all, it's similarly fear-mongering which is why i said it's a nice segue right he's talking about you know all of these things that are happening in the world that wouldn't have happened if i was president right if i were in the oval office i would have prevented the war in ukraine right and then how you know fomenting distrust in law enforcement federally, at least, you know, we have an FBI that can't be trusted because they're not investigating um, these claims, to the election, right? So fomenting distrust and fear, but then the, the audience, right? One hand in the air, one finger in the air, moving sort of in unison, Trump speaking, Differently than than we've heard him speak at other times, right? He's speaking in measured sentences, in a measured pace, almost at, at a sing-songy type um, pitch, very reminiscent of like an altar call at an evangelical church, right? It feels very much like like the closing of of an evangelical mega church sermon where you're about to invite people forward to dedicate their life to the Lord. Um, uh, and now I haven't done a whole lot of research into what the particular gesture means. I don't know if you have, um, but, but clearly there's, there's something going on. Everybody in the audience doing a very similar thing. Now I've seen a lot of juxtapositions of, of that. And then people in Nazi Germany doing the one arm salute. I don't know if that's entirely fair, but I don't know if it's entirely unfair. I don't think it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, but right. I don't know. What, what, what mean, do you know about that gesture? Well, so the first thing I thought, and because it looks like an altar call, my, my first association was with, with the, the so-called one-way sign, which was a thing, uh, you know, the, the Jesus freaks and the, the, the hippies and the Jesus movement. Um, I, I don't. I don't know if Larry Norman himself was the one who sort of coined that gesture, um, but it's very – it's strongly associated with him and then therefore with the sort of Jesus freak, uh, Jesus movement um, going on in the 70s. Uh, but the idea was it was uh, a 
rebuttal to you know moral relativism and to religious relativism to the idea that there are many paths to God, uh, which was you know uh, the fashion at the time, or you know it was a growing concern for uh, conservative Christians at the time that that we were becoming too pluralistic as a society. And so instead they, they reaffirmed, you know, there is one way to one way to God and that's Jesus Christ. And so one way you hold the, the up sign. And so that was the first thought uh, that I had, but there's another connection, which is the song that's being played, which this isn't the first time that the Trump campaign has used it. Um, they started putting out promotional material uh, with it. Uh, I, I, I think last month, maybe longer ago than that. And the song is one that has been really popular for uh, for the last few few years with the the QAnon co- community, the QAnon cult community, and the track itself is actually called. Well, let me get this right. WWG1WGA, which is the very clunky acronym for the QAnon slogan, where we go one, where we go all. Oh, wow. Right. Which is part of the, which is part of the uh, QAnon digital warrior pledge that people were being encouraged to, to take and to, to do the pledge. You record a video of yourself reading the pledge and then post it to social media and I don't know, tag your friends. And then, you know, it, it works a lot like the ice bucket challenge. It's just this sort of viral thing that goes around only within the QAnon community. But the highest profile person who took the QAnon digital warrior pledge was probably General Michael Flynn, who was very into QAnon. Uh, around the time of the election and then the insurrection and the, the months following. Since then, he, he's completely changed his mind and say, no, actually QAnon was a deep state, uh, honeypot to try to trap us and make us look bad. <laughs> Planted by the FBI. But so this track was called Where We Go One, We Go All. And it is a QAnon thing to hold up the one finger for the Where We Go One, We Go All. And so Will Bunch, uh, who's a very online uh, kind of media journalist or tech journalist, uh, but he wrote an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, which not to be confused with the uh, Inquirer with an E that you would see mm. beside Weekly World News on the on the newsstand, but, an, you know, an actual newspaper, but writes – the most striking thing about Trump's Wagnerian moment in Youngstown on Saturday was the reaction of the crowd in the not-full arena, many of whom raised their right arm forward as the music swelled. Most also raised up their index finger or a number one symbol indicative of the QAnon slogan, a call back to their dear leader that they, quote, got it. Several even flashed the Q hand signal. And the reference to they several even flashed the Q hand signal is... The use of oh, it's so convoluted. I don't even know if we should get into it. But you know the the whole like, what does this mean, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, for those you know, who are when when I was listening, you're you're doing the uh, the the forefinger to the thumb with the three fingers, right? I, the OK symbol, I think, is how you know a lot of us understood it. Um, but then in in recent years, a group of online like very online trolls who are sometimes quite skilled at uh, manipulating 
social life and especially what they call the normies, right? People who are not online, who don't get how irony poisoned the internet is. And uh, they, they love creating things that plausibly mean one thing and plausibly mean, mean another. And so they could become a dividing talking point because then even the meaning of the symbol is itself not agreed upon. And so right. they started deliberately using this common gesture that doesn't really mean anything and is used in different contexts. It means different things in different cultures. Uh, but in particular, you know, we call it the okay sign from, or at least we did when I was a kid and it was very normally used for that. But then there's also a game that a lot of, um, like middle schoolers and high schoolers play just called the game, which involves holding that sign below waist level. And if you can get somebody to look directly at it, you get, I think you get to punch them. And so it has these kind of other ambiguous reference to the point that, you know, there was, um, you know, there, there have been a number of group photos of like high school boys where one of them will be holding up that symbol right. and their, their justification or the justification of people defending it is, yeah, I know what that means. He's playing the game, right? But so a, a group on, on 4chan introduced, let's make this mean it's okay to be white, which is itself one of these deliberately ambiguous things that can be used to either express your uh, out-and-out white supremacy or really confuse people who say, well, what? why wouldn't it be okay to be white? Right, right. Right, and so you have that convenience of not only do we have a symbol that can be used to express hate and can be used to let other people know you're in on it and that you're not one of the normies. But also, every time we do it, it causes the normies to fight. Right. And so I don't know, I don't know what links that to being called the QAnon symbol. That's a, that's a step of media analysis I haven't, uh, haven't followed. So I don't know, I don't know what to make of that. But I think the, the use of the, the one finger as tied to QAnon, I think is the most likely uh, explanation for that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I don't know if you saw it. There was, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with Truth Social to know what it's called, but the equivalent of a tweet on, on Truth Social, a post, I guess, um, with uh, the caption or the words, the storm is coming. And then on, you know, you got the photo of Donald Trump um, and on his lapel, there's a Q pin, right? Um, so somebody is explicitly tying Donald Trump to QAnon, saying the storm is coming. But what is uh, fascinating about that is that particular photo in post was, and again, my ignorance regarding Truth Social, just because I refused to get on there, it was retruthed or the equivalent that of is retweeted. Right. Is it retruthed? It's retruthed. Nice. Retruthed. <laughs> re that wow. Retruthed by Donald Trump himself, right? So Donald Trump is retruthing. Um, images of him wearing the Q symbol, um, you know, I don't even, he probably doesn't even know what that means. Maybe he does, but you know, anything that makes him look like, you know, powerful and in control and, and all of that. So um, a lot of overlap uh, between these QAnon conspiracies. I do think digital journalists or tech journalists, you know, I don't know what that, there's, that's a specific subcategory, right? Like people who are journalists of what goes on on social media. Yeah. But, you know, digital muckrakers. But 
digital journalists have noted that he's been very sort of tepid and reluctant on QAnon for quite a while since the since the insurrection. But in the last few weeks, he's really started testing the waters more, and it it gets a lot of positive feedback from the QAnon people who are on Truth Social, right? Which is, I think, an overwhelming majority still of the people on Truth Social. I think um, your your neo Nazis mostly went to Gab, and your QAnon crowd mostly went to Truth Social. But and it, and it really does it portend pot- potentially something dangerous because uh, be- strong belief in the QAnon conspiracy theory and I mean essentially worldview was strongly correlated with political violence, both uh, anti-lockdown and uh, participation in January sixth, and, and the most only- violent participants. Right, and not only that, there have been. At least two that I'm aware of, unless I'm conflating two incidents, of individuals who have killed members of their family. And I, it's been a while since I've looked at the articles, but there, there have been at least one, and I think two, of you know a, a man who killed members of his own family based on Q conspiracies, which law enforcement are looking into. So yes, there's there's definitely a, a violent contingent, a violent. Um, side to these these Q conspiracies and that if if things don't go the way that they want them to i it's not a far stretch of the imagination to think that some of these folks are going to you know respond violently As a matter of fact there was uh, i don't remember the exact circumstance but um a, a slew of TikTok patriots talking about how now is the time, right? Um, and either images of them with their guns or or clearly alluding to, you know, it's time to take up arms in response to some stuff that's going on. So on one hand, it, it is silly. You know, we look at the one hand, but on the other hand, we look at what happened January 6th and some of the rhetoric, it, it could get dangerous and violent very quickly. Well, one other thing I wanted to ask you about the the rally clip because I've seen people try to interpret it either way, but you know, potentially Trump is in some trouble with the law, right? Have you heard this? He, he uh, really might have. <laughs> well, the the, the 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 corrupt law enforcement, right? Who's you know the establishment that's trying to prevent you know his rightful place. Does his bearing, his stature, the way he's carrying himself, the kinds of claims that he's making, which are you know, materially not different from things he said all along. Should we interpret that as signs of a carefree Trump who is not worried? Or is the sort of extra uh, desperation, the going all in on QAnon and so on, should that be read as, no, this is a guy who knows his back is up against the wall? Because, you know, that that contingent of uh, Americans who, who just – like are watching the Trump reality show unfold still um, are spending a lot of, a lot of time and space online with their competing explanations of what this pretends for the infinite Mueller investigation that we are living in. I'm torn. I, I don't, I don't know what he knows and what he actually believes. Right. 
part of me thinks that he knows it's all a bunch of BS, but he doesn't care. And he knows that he can manipulate people. And so he's just going to say what's going to be popular. But part of me thinks that maybe he believes it. What do you think? Do you you think that he believes that he actually won the election? It was all fraud and he's a true believer or is he just. Genuinely, I don't think his mind works like that. I don't think he has the capacity to doubt something he wants to believe is true. And I think a lot of it comes from his uh, Norman Vincent Peale power of positive thinking kind of quasi religion. And I think he's he's obsessive about this idea that that for for particular strong men or great men of history, some people just have this capacity to will, you know, to use their iron will and will their way into the future as they envision it. And he thinks he's one of these these great men and. I think at some point early in your business career, that's just kind of like a, you know, positive thinking hack. Like you just, you just do it. Like you get, you know, like giving yourself affirmations in the mirror, you know, something like that. But I, I think he has one, like 100% that has overtaken his capacity to interpret uh, information in the world. Like he just, he wants And so that's why he can both, I think, really think that he was cheated out of the election, that he rightfully won it, and that some one of uh, a dozen different types of conspiracies happened. You know, either the votes got changed or or whatever. But then also call the Secretary of State of Georgia and tell him, I specifically want 12,693 votes. Find 12,693 votes. Like those two things don't fit together, but right. I think that is – I think they do in his head. And I guess to segue our, our, <laughs> our disparate things here, a lot of the folks who are supporting Trump have bought into um, this idea of, of Christian nationalism uh, pretty wholesale, right? That um, Trump, although not necessarily a Christian himself, although to, you know many of them would think maybe he is now – um, he's promoting uh, policies that are friendly to, to Christian nationalists. Um, and so we're going to transition now to uh, a clip from Al Mohler, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, um, talking about voting uh, and, and Christian nationalism. I don't know if we can find both of these clips here, but what's interesting but before we get into these clips is that not much more than a year ago, uh, Al Mohler in, um, in January of, of 2021 is talking about sort of the danger and the threat of, of Christian nationalism. Um, and, you know, Sure, Christians need to be civically involved, but, you know, warning about the dangers of letting nationalism sort of run, take precedence. And then now, as we near the end of 2022, there's there's two clips, one that was played uh, on a panel regarding Christian nationalism 
and and he says, uh, you know, NBC's Meet the Press uh, with a panel. He says, quote, we have the left routinely speaking uh, of me and others as Christian nationalists. Uh, and, you know, I'm not about to run from that <laughs> as if we're supposed to be running from that. And I'm not about to run from that. So he's he's fully embracing uh, the label Christian nationalist now. And then in this other clip that we're going to watch, he talks about the Christian's duty to vote faithfully. So let's roll that clip. Every single election matters, but every single election is followed by the next one. And faithfulness now is absolutely necessary. And frankly, just given the temporality of life, we've got to give primary attention to faithfulness right now. 2022 in the United States means votes matter. And we have a responsibility to make certain that Christians understand the stewardship of the vote, which means the discipleship of the vote, which means the urgency of the vote, the treasure of the vote. And they need to understand that insofar as they do not vote or they vote wrongly, they are unfaithful. Because the vote is a powerful stewardship. Okay. You know, I wouldn't mind hearing that kind of praising of the vote, and Christians understand the importance of the vote. If it was a defense of the importance of democracy and democratic institutions. Right. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about? No, as, a, as opposed to just a uh, bullying and exclusion that if you are not going to vote for the Republican, that you are not a Christian. <laughs> right. Right. And just really, obviously, he didn't he didn't say that because to say that might jeopardize, you know, certain 501c3 status, I guess. But it, it's absolutely clear that that's what he means. And then he received a ton of pushback on social media um, for making that comparison, um, after which he, he doubled down and said, is anybody surprised that I think that, you know, faithful Christians ought to vote for uh, policies and politicians that support you know, the sanctity of unborn life and traditional marriage. And that's a, that's a paraphrase, but we can, we can throw the, the tweet up there. Um, but yeah, basically, I mean, in, in no uncertain terms, conflating Christian faithfulness with voting Republican. Um, and again, he, he's received a lot, a lot of flack because prior to 2016, he was a vocal strident critic of Donald Trump and, and Christian support for Trump. The, the tweet that <laughs> I, I honestly can't believe he hasn't deleted it yet because it gets thrown mm -hmm. back at him so often <laughs> where he says, you know, never period ever period, period, period. <laughs> um, in reference to Donald Trump. And then, and then he just makes this incredible about face prior to 2020 uh, in that election, and now saying that, you know, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you have to vote Republican to support these things. Um, just another example of the way that these folks have come to, they've done this about face from like being, you know, what is Christian nationalism? Christian nationalism doesn't exist. Christian nationalism is a problem. Actually, Christian nationalism is good. And if you're a Christian living in a nation, you should want to have a Christian nation. I don't know. What do you, what do you make of it? Well, okay. So going in order, in the yeah, the, the glaring show of hypocrisy by 
uh, Al Mohler is entertaining. I I think it's interesting how much pushback he got considering just how normal of a thing that is to say and to hear in evangelical spaces. Right. And it, so in, in some ways it's not surprising or unexpected, but I, I want to get, I want to get your thoughts on the defense, which is harder for Al Mohler in particular to make, but the defense that a lot of never Trumpers who became pro Trump make which is essentially they'll say I was wrong to be a never Trumper, but I believe based on his, his history and his personality and his character that he would not keep his promise to appoint Federalist Society judges. Right. And then I watched for three years as he did. And so I was wrong and now I support him because, and the thing they almost always point to is the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, which, I mean, it's, it's hard to point to many other Trump the achievements because so much of his administration such as it was, was ineffectual and didn't actually get things done other than just general destruction, right? right. The dismantling of, of government agencies and the, the stacking of, of boards and, or sometimes the refusal to appoint a board so that uh, agency, entire agencies can't get work done. And so on like that in a lot of ways, that's the legacy but you know what did he, what did he build? Well, Roe v. Wade was overturned right after right. he was out of office. But what what do you think of that that kind of defense of well, yeah, I changed my mind. How is that hypocrisy to change my mind? It's not on one hand, right? If I think somebody could theoretically say, I, I still don't approve of his personal moral character or his, you know dalliances and other things, but I'm grateful, you know, for the things that he affected, especially in that regard, sort of like a Cyrus, right? Like I can understand somebody making that argument. I don't buy it from Moeller um, only because his entire history is one of, you know, switching to, you know, reading reading the tea leaves, um, sort of sensing the direction the wind blows, and then positioning himself in a place that's going to keep him in most power, right? Uh, you know, he was he had embraced some, some more liberal theology, especially with regards to women in ministry, very early on in his life. And then when it became clear the direction that the conservative resurgence was going and that he could have a, a part to play, took a hard stand, right? So it, it's pretty clear to me that Al Mohler in particular is one who is just going to chase where he's going to find power, uh, what's going to keep him in power, especially in his camp. And so for me, that makes sense of, of his swap on, on Trump, right? He saw the way that his colleague, Russell Moore, just got skewered by, by maintaining a principled stance against Donald Trump. And he wanted to remain in power. So he, you know, read the wind and, and made the swap. And I think that that's what we're seeing here. Yeah. In the case of Al Mohler, I am hard pressed to think of uh, any possible defense. <laughs> like, to, like, if I'm going to advocate for that devil, uh, it's it pretty difficult because, yeah, it's that's just straightforwardly a read of his his career and his situation. Yeah, I think that there are people who can move from never Trump to pro Trump, and at least the that charge doesn't stick. I still think that 
it is probably a vice that moved you in that direction. Yes. Um, but it might not be the vice of, of hypocrisy and, and bandwagoning. Right. Right. I agree. I, I think there are some people who are sincerely, truly and sincerely anti-abortion, believe it strongly and see the fruit of this and say, you know, things like God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks, um, which is a line that I've, I've legitimately heard. And I think there are some people who, who believe that. Um, I don't think it's good logic in this case. I mean, I believe that it's true as a theological statement. God can draw straight, you know, straight lines with crooked sticks and God can use flawed humans to accomplish God's will if God chooses. And I can understand why somebody could make that case for Trump. I don't buy it. I don't think that it's true. I think that there's a lot of swallowing the, the camel and straining at the gnat that comes with that. But I think somebody can sincerely make that switch. Well, if you don't, if there's no more on that, uh, I think just just really quickly, we don't need to get into it too much, but I I do want to mention updates with libs of TikTok, which we first covered in our, um, what is Elon Musk doing buying Twitter episode? He was tied in with her and has become a little bit more tied in with her as, as things have gone on. And she's become much more tied in with the Babylon Bee folks. Uh, so that that relationship is uh, continuing apace. And her profile just grows and grows. And she's more and more straightforwardly being linked to having inspired acts of uh, terror, if not yet violence. Some of them uh, verging into violence with, you know, Proud Boys showing up at libraries and uh things like that in recent weeks. But most recently, she's been crawling through hospital websites looking for any example of ambiguous language that she can use to claim that the hospital is performing various sorts of gender-affirming care for minors. And so in the view of Libs of TikTok and her supporters and the anti-trans movement in general, any any kind of procedure or or process or even just uh, social transitioning, all of that when done for a, a minor or for a child is done in fact to that child. It's a you know something that's being done uh, in a manipulative way or against their will that uh, inherently that they will come to uh, regret. And that this is being done to children by people in power, including medical providers, but also their parents. Right? That's right. that's their perspective on all all any sort of gender affirmation for children from social um, on up. And of course, they're misrepresenting a lot of the claims about specific procedures because they just want to find what is the most potentially inciting or, you know, the procedure that would evoke the most anger in the public. And then we're going to say that they're doing that on seven-year-olds, right? right? So she keeps publishing this information about um, – for a, wh- a while, it was a real all-in on Boston Children's Hospital and, you know, a lot of the regular fo- – regular 
uh, crew that we would expect gets in on this. Seth Dillon from Babylon B is very in on it. Matt Walsh is going very hard on it. I think Ben Shapiro as well. And then a bomb threat is called in against the Boston Children's Hospital. They have to uh, clear parts of the building. They have to um, uh, de- delay uh, procedures uh, during the you know during the time that they're sweeping for this bomb but even before that for you know a, a couple of weeks they they've been having to modify schedules turn away some children not as though it mattered but not children who would be receiving gender affirming care or anything like that but just you know they mostly serve children with leukemia right like that's right. one of the major services the Boston Children's Hospital specializes in right and so this is making uh, the lives of any child who has been uh, being treated or seeking services, uh, their, their, their lives have been disrupted. Uh, some employees have quit because they are being constantly daily harassed by people who take up this misinformation from libs of TikTok and then want to act on it. And so right. a bomb threat was called in. And what do, do you know what happened in the immediate aftermath of the, you know, the days after the bomb threat? I don't. So, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a bomb found, right? And so it was determined that the bomb threat was a hoax. And then after about 24 hours went by after this, and people uh, rightly were calling for Twitter to do something about libs of TikTok, uh, who was clearly spreading information that was leading to threats against uh, threats against the hospital. Then people started defending libs of TikTok and high profile accounts like Charlie Kirk, like Matt Walsh, like Ben Shapiro start defending libs of TikTok and saying clearly the bomb was a false flag or the bo- the false report of a bomb was a false flag done by some deranged leftist who wants to get libs of TikTok in trouble. Clearly. Right. And so then what happened after that? Two or three days later, the FBI arrested somebody, and she's a huge Trump supporter, QAnon, um, who's just really concerned about the the things that these hospitals are doing to these children. And so, and of course, silence from all the people who for days had been going full Alex Jones mode saying, oh, this was a false flag. They're they're just trying to set up libs of TikTok. Uh, Libs of TikTok did nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but people are now embracing, right? Like you said, this is spreading beyond libs of TikTok. Matt Walsh had a lot to do with it. Some of his tweets basically calling for people to go to the Boston Children's Hospital. Um, and then, you know, another semi-anonymous individual who goes by the the handle Billboard Chris. Um, and he is, he's, made a name for himself now doing a speaking tour talking about how children can't consent to um, medical transition or hormone blockers or anything like that. Um, But in one of his tweets referred to his speaking tour as quote, his stochastic terror tour, right? So they're taking these accusations and, and now owning them, you know, in a, in a sort of silly way saying, you know, so I guess it's, the way that it's expanding and broadening just beyond libs of TikTok um, to where people are making names and platforms and, you know, I would assume paychecks 
um, based on on this same type of stuff, with seemingly no no remorse, no uh, d- despite the fact that it's not true. Boston Children's came out and said, "We we don't do this. That this that, that's not a service that we offer to anybody under seventeen. I don't know. It, it's it's terrifying. It's enraging, and it's heartbreaking that people are so swayed." by these social media pundits that they're willing to take violent action over easily falsifiable claims, right? And I think this ties into even our very first episode on the January 6th insurrection, right? People enacting violence because they have been led to believe obvious lies. And and what do we do about it? Right. I, I guess that that's where I've just spent a lot of time wrestling lately. I have deep, deep concern because I don't know how to address this. I don't know how to have meaningful conversations to move the needle in any meaningful way when there's no shared foundation for for truth, for fact. And I'm I'm concerned. I don't want to say I'm scared. I'm concerned for what's going to happen. I mean, people are losing lives. People's livelihoods are being attacked. Um, and I don't know a meaningful way forward. Yeah. It's in some ways it's, it's not clear that there is a way forward, you know, and I hate to, well, I don't always hate to be the the downer, but I mean, but, but, but genuinely, you know, you, you can think of the hypothetical, you know, how, how would you get it implemented? You can't say, but at least, you know, if I could wave a wand and make these changes to, say, the structure of our electoral system and or the structure of the Internet, these are the changes I would make. And you can think of some interventions that uh, really help, like decorum moderation on, on Twitter, right? Like if, if there were a lot more effective moderation on social media, if posts could not go viral, if there was an artificial suppressant to the virality of posts or, um, you know, a, a technical recommendation you see people like Jonathan Haidt make is, is the, the slow share. So anything that's being shared more than so many times per hour you can't share it automatically, but you would have to manually like go copy over the address, start your own post, right? Like, you know, and research shows that the majority of people, if they have a 20 second delay on something or even sometimes a three second delay, hmm. they won't do it. Hmm. And so it cuts down on the spread of misinformation. So there's these like technical implementations you could put in that I think would do uh, something measurable to improve our online media space because our online media space is, is, is terrible. It's a cesspool. Everybody knows this. Um, you know, it's such a joke what, that being in Twitter is like being in hell. Like, but, and yeah, we go there every day, but <laughs> spent a lot of time there. <laughs> do you, th- do you think that that would actually work or would it be counterproductive? So I think of things like, the fact checking that Facebook did during the election, all of that, right? Where you, and all of a sudden 
this is viewed not as something helpful, but oh, this is just censorship, right? This is this is big tech trying to suppress, you know, the truth and all of that. And I wonder, I don't know, I don't know the data on that. Does that help truly in the aggregate? And it's just a small minority of people who aren't going to be persuaded anyways, making the, the biggest noise about it, but it, but it's really effective. Or is it counterproductive and viewed as censorship? And then does that serve to then amplify um, the persecution narrative? I don't know. I'm not sure about that one in particular, which seems like a kind of a real blunt instrument to me. But my understanding is that a lot of the nudges that Facebook and Twitter have built in, like when you go to retweet something, if the system can't verify that you clicked through that link then it's going to give an additional pop-up and say, hey, it doesn't look like you've read this article. Would you like to read it first? And then yeah. you just have to click the button again. Like it doesn't, it doesn't stop or even really delay anything. But the, the statistics show that it does – like there are a significant percentage of people who get that pop-up and then don't retweet it. Interesting. So like nudge nudges into specific behavior patterns is something that they're, you know, UX designers are always trying to do. Yeah. And, and some, some of them are, you know, uh, somewhat effective in aggregate. And I think that the capacity for algorithmic control, first algorithmic measurement and then algorithmic control of social media, it's going to ramp up a lot faster than we expect. I'm just not sure that, all of those technocratic solutions really solve what is ultimately a sort of social right. discohesion, a social brokenness right. in the United States that really, I mean, predates social media. Sure, sure. But it's has certainly social media has amplified it, you know, and the research shows that, you know, the, the algorithms tend to feed our our predispositions and our biases and are driving us further and further apart from each other, which is, I guess that's part of my concern is, I mean, I think we all know people on the other side of this. How do we have those conversations and can we have them and enough of them, you know, individually it's great, right? But I, how many individual conversations can I have in a day, in a week, in a month? And, are those individual conversations? So I, I think about this in light of the fact, you know, that I, I'm a church pastor, right? Um, and I'm not saying anything in particular about my, my congregation, but for all pastors, right? We, for the most part, have one hour a week at, at most, right? Maybe a, a 20 to 30 minute sermon at most. And then for some of them, we have, you know, a midweek Bible study or something. And the rest of the week, we have people who are being discipled by Tucker Carlson and social media and all of these things. And I, I just don't know if there's, how do you slow that divide? How do you bring people to even have conversations or, or do you not? Right. Cause I, you and I are both mutuals and friends of people who say it's not worth having those conversations. Right. We just, you know, we fight for, the, the policy that we're and we let them go. Um, but I don't know, man, the, the past I've just been feeling heavy, heavier the past several days 
as I've, as I thought about this, you know, my own personal, you know, wrestling with animosity towards the people who are promoting that my, my just disheartened state towards people that I know who have, who have given into it. People who in individual interpersonal relationships seem to be pretty decent people, right? They, they, they do well at their job. They take care of their family, but have bought into these just deeply destructive ideas about politics and, yeah, you know, I don't know, this isn't a therapy session, but I, <laughs> I, I just have a lot of heaviness about me with regard to where we go from here. In some ways, I think that agreeing not having relationships that are medi are not medi mediated on this ground to some degree, I think that that's fine, right? Like I can be friends with people that we have fundamental disagreements, even about, you know, basic facts of reality or whatever. And we just don't talk about those things. And we, you know, know each other's families and we hang out or whatever, but there's also a class of not just a factually inaccurate belief, but hateful belief or things right. that I perceive as, as hate beliefs, but that they don't or that they are self-conscious of. And I think that if you're self-consciously, you know, if, if you're willing to just come out and say to yourself, yeah, I'm a racist and I think it's fine to be a racist, which I, you know, I know some of those people, then like, then I'm not even concerned. Like, okay, we're not like, that's not something that you and I can uh, overcome and not talk about. Uh, but it's the more ambiguous case where they just, they think they just believe in like, we should have a compassionate legal immigration system and people should follow the law. Like they, right. that's, that's how they would characterize their belief. But in fact, I, I can like under the surface, not even under the surface, but implicit in the various claims and commitments that they, that they make they're ethno-nationalists or, Absolutely. you know, xenophobic enough that you can't tell the difference. Right. And at the very that's moment, where bought into replacement theory, right? Right. Right. And that's where it's, it's a much more difficult moral question. Mm -hmm. Like at what point do you have to say, look, we, we can talk this through or we cannot be friends, but we can't not talk about it. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, just what flows from that is, so we stop, we stop being friends. We become increasingly siloed. Right. And, and you know me, and I, I hope people listen to me. I'm not some centrist anymore. <laughs> right. You know, let's meet in the middle. But at some point, like if we just become so increasingly siloed that we, we can't, even talk, how far are we from, from civil war, from the kinds of violence that we're seeing in other places? And I mean, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to fear monger, but I've got some real concerns <laughs> that the way that this is going is, is heading towards irredeemable division. I don't know. I, I hope I'm wrong, but it, it just, Past past few days, couple of weeks, it's been weighing on me heavier than it has in a while. Well, there are alternatives to civil war. 
You know, there's um, peaceful mutual dissolution. <laughs> like, the, you know, the idea of a, a post-United States United States is, I don't think, inherently far-fetched. And it might even only require a minimum of violence to get both sides to really uh, very quickly and enthusiastically come to terms on that and break into some weird desiccated, because, you know, it won't be a north-south or east-west type split. It's an ideological split. Right, right. And so, I and I don't, I don't think that it's being unrealistic or dramatic to kind of realistically uh, think about what the post-United States looks like. Whether that means, like, all-out, multi-year, everyone is in scripted civil war, or something... Um, much less than that. This wasn't on our outline. <laughs> well, it basically is because uh, you summarized a lot of the, the concern uh, that you've been feeling into a tweet and it, it's a hit tweet. <laughs> it, it was, it was, uh, it was more of a hit than I thought. It was, it was late on a Friday night. Saturday night. I don't even remember how long it's been since I tweeted it now. Yeah. A couple of nights ago. And I, I just, you know, it was a vulnerable post. It's a vulnerable post. How do you avoid developing a bitter resentment toward people who are hijacking Christianity and their bigoted pursuit of power and shipwrecking the faith of many, um, which is what I'm wrestling with. And over the next couple of days, right. I, I'm at, at the time of this recording, I'm at 2,266 likes, um, 191 retweets, and then 495 replies um, and the replies have, have run the gamut, right. From, you know, uh, you know, let the hate flow through you <laughs> um, <laughs> to, you know, what are you even talking about? Nobody's doing those kinds of things to, well, you just need to pray more brother, but it's gotten some attention. Uh, and most of it has been sympathetic. Actually, I've been surprised. A lot of people have been sympathetic saying you have articulated the anxiety that I have been feeling for a long time has been a lot of the replies I've gotten. <laughs> and then some not so sympathetic replies, which I'll let you describe since you were the one who initially found them. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Finally, the far right has found our <laughs> podcast. The investigation has been has been uncovered uh, because an account... It, I think they have about a tw- twenty five thousand ish followers, yeah. um, but they're very much in the vein of Libs of TikTok. In fact, Libs of TikTok really stole their shtick, and you know, and then surpassed them. But it's you know they they didn't invent the genre either. It's a you know a negative quote aggregator or negative tweet aggregator, which is to say, you know, like bad legal takes will clip people who are you know clip other people's tweets that show legal ignorance and bad medical takes is another one. And um, defiant L's is another one. And they're, you know, they're just trying to find people and embarrass them to some community who, who will get around it. And some of them are more kind of benign and, uh, and harmless. And some of them are, and probably most of them are, are pretty vicious towards some, some perceived group. And so the one we're talking about is woke creature clips. <laughs> which normally just takes clips from, you know, they, I guess they scour 
uh, church websites and just look for the things that to them that evidence, you know, sloppiness with the Bible, li- liberal interpretation, um, any, anytime someone praises the Democrats or, or whatever. But they, they, they saw your tweet going viral and uh, yep. considered that woke somehow. And they obviously started doing some digging, doing some research, like the investigative journalists that they are. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, I, I am similarly motivated. <laughs> but they did some research and they uh, came upon the podcast and then they found that I am a co-host of the podcast with you. And so they started digging into me and they found uh, uh, some tweet of mine from 2016 that was sufficiently woke and liberal. And so they screenshot that quote, retweeted your tweet and said, the person in this tweet who's so concerned with people hijacking the faith co-hosts a podcast with this guy. And then the screenshot of my tweet, right? Right. And so it was just, it was just supposed to be guilt by association for you. I don't know if it, I don't know if they did an initial look in your, because they're, you know, they were searching uh, specific terms, right? right? So I'm sure that they have a list of here are the terms that'll produce a tweet that my conservative followers will think is bad, right? Right. Yeah. And so apparently you were squeaky clean the first time, but then they uh, they they didn't give up, did they? Because it was <laughs> I think 24 hours later, yeah, yeah this morning. Uh, they, they found their, their liberal tweet. And so then they put, they, they just did a little screenshot collage and put your initial tweet together with the second one. And, uh, that was about being uh, LGBT affirming, right? Right. right. But in both said, cases, you, your, your tweet right, mine and was, mine. mine was as well. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is interesting because you'd think that woke preacher clips would look for, uh, being, you know, pro CRT or, or, or whatever, which plenty of ammunition on that front too. For both of us. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised it took them so long to find but, And said, this guy is concerned about hijacking the faith or about <laughs> the faith being hijacked. Right. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think it, it drove as much traffic to our, our pages and podcasts as I would have liked it. You know? <laughs> Um, yeah, I love getting negative attention. <laughs> I was, I was and tempted. I feel, I feel like I'm missing out. I was tempted to reply to the initial one and say, you could have at least included the link to the podcast and, and putting it in there. You know? <laughs> but yeah, it, but it's that in and of itself is fascinating, right? I, I've long talked about how homophobia is a first principle in, in this crowd. And what's fascinating is they, in my initial, tweet, the one that went sort of viral, nothing in that was in itself woke enough for them to just criticize as it stands, right? So they have to look for something that is going to discount the concern there. And in both cases, it's affirming LGBT, right? So, well, clearly this person can't be trusted as any sort of honest uh, critic of of what we stand for because they think gay people should be treated with dignity and respect, which just sort of highlights the fact that this, this bigotry is a first principle. It's a, it's a foundational principle for them. And more and more, I'm to the point where like, if that's the thing that you have, like, if that's the smoking gun is my 
um, affirmation of the dignity and worth of LGBTQ people. Like, I'll take that as a compliment, right? Like I, I saved the image from this morning. Like they even used a pretty nice picture of me in the background. I, I, I wasn't mad about it, <laughs> but yeah, that like, like, aha, that's the thing, right? Is, is they think we should be nice to gay people, man. It's sad. Yeah. <laughs> we really beat this point into the ground when we were looking at statement on social justice and the gospel, right. but the degree to which they are willing to tolerate theological disagreement on a myriad of you know very important issues and also the degree to which the church is is able to incorporate or is able to accommodate serious moral difference right think right. about divorce think about um participation in war right we're talking about ethics around the most serious moral issues on which there is a, a huge scriptural emphasis all throughout and especially in the New Testament on these issues. And you can right. see, you know, why ver various interpreters come to the, to the views that they have, but they're willing to accommodate that difference. All, well, to the extent that they'll acknowledge that pacifists might actually be Christians. Yeah. Typically I don't see like but the, but the church in general, right? something that people say, Oh, you're a pacifist. You're clearly not a Christian. I, I rarely see that. Right. But I regularly see that with regard to LGBTQ affirmation. And women in ministry, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. To a lesser degree. I mean, they, they, they will say if you have a, you know, a woman pastor, that's not a pastor, that's not a church. But I, I don't see them saying if you affirm women in ministry, you're going to hell. To the same degree, I see them saying if you affirm LGBTQ people, you are just clearly, you know, you're a heretic, you're outside the faith. I guess it's just a matter of degrees. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that that standard for LGBT, LGBT affirmation is more common, mm -hmm. but there is a, I think a very strong strain of the, these people, including people who are signatories of all of the statements that we're talking about, you know, your people like Nathaniel Jolly and I mean, John MacArthur, really the whole MacArthurite right. uh, system that they just hold that if you are egalitarian or believe that women can be pastors. That's just so clearly evidence that you are not regenerate, that you don't read the Bible or believe the clear teachings of the Bible because it's, it's so absolutely both explicit and plain for them and objective and also so foundational to their, to their worldview, which is all wrapped up in both misogyny and, and an embrace of hierarchy. Right. 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 Which is exactly what we see in the, the Frankfurt statement as well. It's all about hierarchy and who has power over whom. Yes. Yep. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's been a, it's been a busy two weeks in Christian nationalism, unfortunately. It has. It has. And we haven't covered everything. Um, there seems to be more and more, a lot of, a lot of discourse on Christian nationalism taking place right now. Um, yeah, there was a well, – we'll include it in the show notes, but the – and we, we quoted briefly from it, but the NBC Meet the Press special on the the rise of theocracy among conservatives. Right. And they particularly highlighted Doug Wilson, who signatory the Frankfurt Statement and you know has been sort of our constant fellow traveler in all of these ATR, ATM episodes. Yes. Yes. Uh, so – Next week, we should be getting back 
your next episode should be getting back into our uh, historical miniseries, looking at the historical roots of Christian nationalism and the the Christian far right. Um, unless something major hits the news between now and then, in which case we might get another ATR ATM. As usual, you know, if anybody has listened this long, <laughs> then you're a, a prime <laughs> candidate to be one of our patrons um, because you really care about the work that we're doing. But really, we we appreciate. Um, the likes, the shares, uh, the comments, the discussions on Discord, anybody who's willing and able to help financially underwrite us on uh, Patreon to help uh, cover the cost of production. You know, we, we do this because we find it enjoyable and it's cathartic. Uh, but also we think it's, it's super important. There's lots going on in the country um, that's, that's cause for concern, um, sometimes beneath the surface. And so we're trying to do some of the digging, maybe so you don't have to. Um, so any way that you can help amplify the, the message, we are very, very grateful. <laughs>